Okay, so I will be leading. Uh, I have a list, um, alphabetical, and I wanted, yeah, to, we, I know that we are always confused about this silence between paragraphs, so we can maybe make it more strict and just count to five silently before we start the other paragraph. And, but another thing I wanted to mention that one big benefit for me joining this group is that we discuss uh, meaning of almost like when we even stop and talk about almost almost every paragraph, it also helps. And I think we did it in the previous book. The, the more we discussed, that was the best. So, and this book is not that big actually. So, um, but I have Cody, then myself, Alan, Emily, Gail, Kim, Laurie, Milan, and Trouty. Forgot Ellen. Um, no, he got me. Yeah. Did he? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, you became, you're before Emily. My alphabet's a little rusty. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody's not going to start reading after five seconds, I'll just remind the name. <laughs> I haven't been here for a while, so this is something new. We're pausing for five seconds between paragraphs. We were doing this, I think, but not officially. Um, okay. so I think we were on the page 33 over here. My chair. Maybe one size bigger, Daniel. That's it. Mm -hmm. Is okay, that good for people? Chair. Yeah. Yeah, my book. Night Tarot. There's a moment when the fall appears in consciousness, like a new character stepping on stage in a play. Usually we resist such an announcement because it carries with it a terrible pain. But a fall, but a fall can also be announced by an event we desire. In either case, its distinguish, distinguishing feature is that it calls out, calls our entire life into question. Everything we have believed dissolves beneath us, and we enter a journey whose end we do not know. Whether we recognize this first moment of the journey is not important. It is where it leads us that counts. Sometimes the herald comes with the trumpet and flags of a great disaster. A woman takes her daughter in for a routine medical exam and learns that her ch child's persistent ear itches. Earaches, it's earaches. Okay, earaches are caused by brain tumor. Another woman, a nurse, is working overseas in a safe civilized country when a civil war breaks out and she finds herself accidentally and intimately cut up in the terrifying descent of a whole people. She could live, but does not. Instead, accepting the ordeal 
that fate has offered with such apparent successless. No, casual, casualness. Casualness, sorry. She crosses the lines to help the wounded of both sides. She goes through the long night of war with the country in which she had been merely a guest before. And afterwards, her life too is not the same. In her home, she keeps vases and ashtrays made of shells casings, object, objects that begin to demonstrate the time of horror and function too as trophies of initiation. Her sense of the worth of everything human comes from that place. That's a hard story. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, don't be sorry. Uh, the scent can also begin with an unexpected reprieve. A young soldier, a scout in a jungle in Asia, looked up one afternoon and saw an enemy platoon on the opposite hill. He realized that they had been sitting there for some time, that they could have killed him, but they had not. He and they watched each other without thought as animals might. Then the enemy soldiers filed quickly away without cover, disappearing over the hill. The soldier in turn did not fire. By the time he came home, he was no longer able to believe in the war he had volunteered for. His children will tell their children that story of a moment of supreme life in the jungle. If if a nurse in the Civil War discovered how dangerous rel uh, relatives can be to each other, the soldier found that even enemies can have, have an incomprehensible fellow feeling. Each experience led to a painful reassessment of life and its meaning. And it's, it, it's always seemed to me so difficult, the idea that you would hurt someone who you don't know. I mean, it's one thing to hurt someone when you're angry at them, right? But uh, that's another thing. And my father-in-law uh, was in World War II and he was shooting at people so far away and it was so difficult for him. And I think he's still suffering from it mm -hmm. at 103 and a half. Oh gosh. It says here that they watched each other without thought, you know, as animals do. So when I hear that, I hear without um, all, all the voices telling you that you need to act. They just were there watching. I think that would be, uh, that's the way we connect really best sometimes, just in that quiet watching. I like that. Sometimes there is not a clear moment when the fall begins. There is just a thickening of life's energy, as if a person had been sleeping on a hillside and awoke to find the weather changed, the landscape unfamiliar, and wild beasts approaching. Mm -hmm. 
That is Dante's story, and it is common in a life that is otherwise peaceful. A man realizes his wife has drifted away into an interior place inaccessible to him, that his long marriage is probably ending, and that his children are strangers to him. He does not know where the divide began. He was busy working and doing what he thought good. Yet now, when he looks at his family across the table, there is a chasm, and it seems as if a cold wind is blowing in a room that was previously so familiar as not to be noticed. Sometimes the trumpet sounds when the story is already far along. A minister whose father had been a drunk shielded his son from the grandparents and tried to rear him in innocence. But the son didn't understand the accumulation of pain and knowledge behind the father's rules and at 17 went off to live in the streets and take drugs. Mm. The son had never been initiated, he might say, and so needed to enter the very realms from which his father had tried so hard to protect him. Then the boy's mother noticed that she too was in pain. She had known this in a vague way before, but had thought it a dark music for her ears only. Until her son left, it didn't occur to her that her own sense of suffocation was important. Children are surprisingly impervious to the intentions of their parents. So we can't say that the parents set their son on his dangerous course. But it did seem that the boy's plunge signaled that it was past time to attend to a familial darkness long ignored. Mm. Wow. I'm just wondering whether um, the, all these uh, situations of darkness come about because of an external circumstance, don't they? But there's also just the darkness that um, just comes from the inside. Maybe it's the experience of the external challenge, you know, that um, creates, um, you know, uh, thoughts or beliefs, some sort of um, sense of needing to protect yourself or, you know, change something. So that's when the internal meets the external, you know. I think that's a really good point. Thank you. <laughs> Not only individuals, but whole nations can slip into the abyss. The war in Vietnam crept up on American culture, announced little by little in small town deaths. Few people thought that sending military advisors into that then remote and little heard of country was a matter for moral questioning. In this way, a small hubris, if there is such a thing, became a great evil. The assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King 
were large announcements of the general climate <coughs> of confusion, of pain to come, as well as, in King's case, a declaration that old evils are hard to set at rest. In the 1980s, suspicion of government and the pleasant dream of reduces, reducing taxes, ideas unremarkable in themselves, and in some degree consequences of the failed war in Southeast Asia, led to an astonish, astonishing heaping up of debt and a general refusal of the obligation of citizenship. The result of these unexamined ideas was a great deterioration in civil life. The heralding movement awakens us to the bitter potion of sorrow in the world. We may think of the first traumatic summons as the darkness itself, but it is merely the first shock, an announcement of pain to come and of the journey thought throughout it. Throughout it. After we have heard the call, there is no choice. We have already beaten into the apple of the knowledge of good and evil, and we are becoming human with the inevitable labor of blessing that follow, blessings that follow. Daniel, can you please <clears throat> shrink it a little bit because um, the, uh, I mean, the participants are overlapping into the text. Or if you can move it further, to, yes, thank you. The legend of Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha, Buddha is, illustrates some of the complexity of our response to the herald of night. At his birth, it was prophesied that he would become a king or a great sage. His parents, royalty themselves, wanted him to be king. They taught him the arts a prince must know. They found him a bride. They tried to protect him from the harshness of the world, assuming that if he discovered what life is really like, he would flee along the path of wisdom. Still, unawareness is not always easy to preserve. One day, upon leaving the palace, he saw a thick, sick person, an old person, and a corpse. These three revelations of the actual were enough. The discovery of suffering and its inevitable course broke the spell of his innocence. Then he saw an ascetic and recognized that here was a way to address the sharpness that had come over him. He began a long journey downwards in which he left his palace and family and nearly starved to death in the forest. The realization of pain in the world always has personal consequences. It affects me and my child and my job. It is the plan for my life. 
that is ruined. The legendary prince didn't wait for disaster to overtake him in order to do something about his unconscious condition. He set off, bending his life toward prayer and meditation. Yet taking action in the face of suffering is not simple. The quantity of darkness in his tale is large and holds the possibility of getting lost forever. Shakyamuni abandoned his family. It is, it is said that on the night he left, <clears throat> he paused in the doorway in silent farewell to the woman and children sleeping there and didn't dare to wake them. If we, if we imagine their confusion when they woke up the, ne the next morning, we see that if the man has found a sure path, he has asked his family to bear the desolation and loss that is the underside of his certainty. A child needs more than food and shelter. A child needs stories and reasons and caresses, the knowledge of the father and the mother, the presence of history. In the, there's a story that uh, Tishnat Han wrote about Buddha in which um, his wife was awake when he left them that night. Yashodura, mm -hmm. yeah. And um, she knew he was going to leave them. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah. Well, there's a beautiful story that Peg read that, that it maybe is, is the same story, but where she actually um she's pregnant with the child mm -hmm. and her pregnancy lasts for seven years at <laughs> the same time that and they're both being enlightened together but i'm wondering Trouty, uh might it be that that if if your husband went off to become enlightened that this would be a great source of pride as opposed to to sadness, that you would be very proud of your husband and you would, um, this would give you great happiness. The star going on so loud. I could hear you, yes. Well, thank you for asking. Um, it probably depends in what culture because women in those times, they were absolutely dependent, not only on their husband, but on his family. And I mean, not in Buddha's case, but even in some other princely uh, families, the women will be sent back to their parents with the child or with you know, expecting the child. So, <clears throat> I mean, it is all economically motivated, the tradition, but <clears throat> I do not know what we could say about uh, Buddha's wife. 
because we really do not have enough information as far as I know. And so there is a variety of, of stories about it. And in some of them, actually, um, his wife became enlightened too. So, sorry, I don't have a straightforward answer to your question. Well, I think I think the key is that it's a story that you know <laughs> that this was a terrible thing. It it, it could have been that the people around her would all take care of her and the baby, and that this sure. was this was um, some uh, this was a source of pride for her. For her, well. In the story that I read, she understood what they were coming to, but it was still painful. And I, and I would say that from a child's point of view, even me that doesn't even know their parent well, the feeling of being not chosen or abandoned, or abandoned it, would be, it would be something that they would carry into their life, even if they felt that there was a good reason which they probably don't even think of it in that way <laughs> when they're little, you know? Yes, that is true. Well, I would like to elaborate a little bit on this. Uh, in the families still till today in general, whether people um, are Western educated or live in urban areas, uh, <clears throat> Usually it's more than the immediate parents who do the parenting. <coughs> and it's, it's not only one mother or one father or one uncle or one aunt. So um, it is definitely not a nuclear family. It's a widespread family at all times. So that plays a great deal of influence, especially for royalty when they could certainly afford almost anything that they wanted or needed. So I do not know whether the losses for uh, Buddha's wife and the child um, were or can be interpreted in what we know nowadays, what culturally happens in, in, the, in the West or even in, in, in the East, meaning including India. Um, it's just an entirely different thing. It's a good point, Trouty. It is. <laughs> I, I think as long as there is uh, someone that loves a child unconditionally in their life, then they do okay. I, we have a family member who came from a very wealthy family and his experience was that his parents were absent through most of his childhood. And in fact, he thought his caregiver, uh, this woman, his nanny, was in fact as much believed he was, she was his mother until he was about eight. Oh. Yeah. And um, they let her go. Oh, gosh. It was pretty shocking to him. He talks about it all the time. Yeah. 
That's not the Buddha situation. <laughs> By leaving the child on the woman, Shakyamuni confirmed to, to the familiar pattern that for the sake of developing the spirit, we must turn away from the world and our ties. The same gesture appears in Jesus' rejection of his mother. But this means to turn away also from the trees and the fate of the planet and the soul, which loves those things. If we are to have a marriage of soul and spirit, we will have to find a way to walk back eventually through the charged doorway and find the wisdom of the sage in that small, quiet room where the woman and the child are sleeping still. I, um, I really love this point that he's making here. You know, the point I even thought when I first started my uh, spiritual, whatever it was, woke up in me that I needed to separate myself and go away and you know, have retreats and uh, even contemplated, you know, something more extreme at one point. And, um, but it wasn't feasible <laughs> for me to do that. So I was forced to keep in my life with my husband and my children and, you know, everybody and all the chaos that surrounds that. And yet changes still, you know, happened. You know, there was still growth, you know, so, yeah. I don't know that you have to always leave. I never heard of Jesus's rejection of his mother. Does anyone know about that? No, no. It's new to me too. <laughs> there's, there's a story of him leaving her. Uh, it's similar to the Buddha's story, I think. Really? I never kind heard of like that. A, it's a pivotal moment, yeah. I, I had not heard of that, but I did hear a story about the fact that his family didn't really understand him. You know, yeah. they didn't understand um, who he was and what he'd realized. Um, and so they actually were not his biggest fans, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Isn't there a story where he was with his disciples somewhere and his family was tell it was thinking that he was actually crazy and was trying to convince him to come home? Oh, I don't remember that either. I, I, I remember that and I don't remember where I uh, where I read it. I remember that story. They they just hardly knew what to think of him because he when he was really young, like eight or twelve or something lecturing to all the great minds and great priests or something and and they just were baffled by him i remember reading that they were probably worried about him yeah <laughs> i would have been good reason Initiation. Oh, it's Ellen, right? It's me, isn't it? Okay. Initiation. 
When our innocence is gone and the descent has become irrevocable, the mind becomes for a while very open. This inner fluidity arises from the ordeal of our suffering, which strips away our usual ways of dealing with the world. Such a state of mind is valued and cultivated both in high spiritual traditions and by hunter and gatherers. It allows a through passage for messengers from the world beyond temple, village, and campfire. And the mind of openness, infinity, comes near. And with help, we can find a link to our ancestors, a way to participate in the world of wild animals, of rivers and stars. This is the inner transitional space of initiation. When we enter it, we move from being victims of fate to being pilgrims on a path. All interchange seems to involve entering an initiation space in which we move temporarily from the center to the margins of life. In tribal cultures, initiation includes a formal controlled method of thrusting the initiate into an overwhelming darkness and then leading him back out into a new connection with the community. This process is usually composed of an ordeal, an inner shift of some kind, and a reunion on different terms with the community of the living. All cultures devise ordeals for children on the verge of growing up. As well as being arduous, a good ordeal should teach the initiate something about being an adult. <coughs> War and military training have always served as harsh initiations for young men and for the civilians whom war rolls over. In a peaceful time, exams, irregular French verbs, <laughs> differential calculus, driving tests, football games, and piano recitals can provide a form of ritual transition. Less official initiations exist as well. Drinking, drug taking, first sex, drag racing, ecstatic plunges into music and poetry, and seem to center around altering the consciousness given by childhood. Childbirth is a common initiation for young women, holding the traditional elements of pain and danger, connection to the natural processes of life, and winning, and winning through to a new identity within the community. Uncontrolled and terrifying ordeals are our common fate too. Earthquake, fire, rape, and street fights, the sudden death of childhood friends, a car turning over or on a satellite, its lights illuminating a cornfield, the sky, the road, the cornfield again. I never thought of childbirth as an initiation but as I read this, I see how true it is yeah. in my case. Definitely true. I stepped over the line into an adulthood that I wasn't quite ready for at 18, but it was a definite initiation. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
the traverse out of the innocence of childhood can be so dangerous that some people, peoples have developed particularly fierce forms to contain the energy. <coughs> Aboriginal boys in Australia were, and sometimes still are, taken from the tribe by the old men and subjected to long ordeals in which they learned to manage hunger and thirst as part of their instruction in the secrets of hunting, history, and ceremony. Their chests and penises were cut open to mark them as having been changed into men. The idea animating these rites is that the world produces our bodies, but we are not fully human until the elders have made, have helped make our souls. Although the paradigmatic rite of passage occurs at adolescence, initiation and its ordeals are not confined to a particular time of life. Every descent offers the possibility of initiation. And as Dante noticed, there is often a descent in the middle of life. The ordeal itself, whether or not we have elders to guide us through it, purifies. It is raw torment and we must bear it, that is all. And yet within the framework of the inner life, torment is also a door, a gate, an entrance exam, testing the depth of our sincerity and commitment. At first, we have to stay with our suffering without hope of change. We do not know it, but Endurance itself provides us with a weight to bear the next step. A woman who lost her only child, a daughter, was still grieving 18 months later. The book she found in her desperation said she was supposed to be pulling out of it, but she wasn't. And how can there be a program for such sorrow? One, one night, she dreamed, I am tramping through the night, tramping, tramping. That is all there. Was the dream and all there was to her life at the moment to march as if she were in an army and to bear what she had to bear and go where she was being led. Each morning she woke up with the presence of her daughter and each morning had to talk herself into living through the day. She hardly dared to think or feel, breathing or walking were all she could do. She had no sense that this terrible time would ever end. Still, when an image of the ordeal appears, as in this dream, then there is some possibility of change because a story is starting to take form. A little piece of what we, sh what we shall later recognize as soul making is going on. An image offer, offer, offers us the beginning of a relationship with the inner life. 
this appearance tells us that the dreamer, the story maker, is still alive. But this woman's dream is so terse, laconic, and concrete that the numbing effects of her ordeal are also pain. There's not much consolation from such a dream. <clears throat> it is a thin shaft of light in an enormous dungeon. An ordeal doesn't gain meaning until it begins to lighten. At first, we are just reduced, like apricots being boiled into jam. We lose the upper levels of consciousness and are sunk in personal griefs. As we descend, there are no obvious edges to darkness. We are taken downward and further downwards into the deeper night. I just found that paragraph so beautiful. I sent it to a friend a few weeks ago. Mm. It, it's just, and the image of the apricots being boiled oh. into jam, I thought. Yeah, was I like that one too. I like the sentence, an ordeal doesn't gain meaning until it begins to lighten. Mm -hmm. When you look back, when I do look back on uh, ordeals, that's true. I, I, you know, it's really hard when you're going through something really difficult to sit back and go, well, what's the bright side of this? Or what can I learn from this? You know, usually you're just uh, sunk into the visceral um, feeling in your body and, you know, your heart and um, your emotions. And, uh, um, but then everything changes. That's the impermanence, you know? And, you know, it's pretty soon the light starts to come in. <laughs> and isn't that the difficulty when someone comes to us mm -hmm. in the middle of an ordeal and we attempt to lighten it? Mm. Yes. Yeah. We're really, on such different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. mm. Really, you know, the subtext of, of is trying to change somebody from feeling what they're feeling, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and at that moment, you really can't stop feeling what you're feeling, you know? So, you know, I, I've come to realize it's really people just want to be held in a very sweet way when they're going through what they're going through. Uh, if you can handle it, but, you know, if I start to feel uncomfortable over their pain, I'm not much help. Right. You know, I have to be able to to be with it without wanting to change it. But I think it's also I mean, I'm thinking of my father and he would often make light of when I was in this kind of situation of in the middle of pain. But I, I think it was also that he didn't want to feel it because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. he had had such pain as a kid, you know, losing his father very young, things like that. Mm. Yeah, the, the, like I say, the unconscious feeling is um, sort of, um, you shouldn't be feeling this or, um, you know, this is making me uncomfortable or I shouldn't be feeling this, you know, just wanting to change the whole thing. Um, it's hard not to want to change things when they're difficult. Mm -hmm. 
uh, he he's, was a big proponent of this idea of spiritual bypassing. I don't know if you guys know that, if you've heard of that, but, but I asked Peg if he authored it and she didn't think so, but, but the, he spoke a lot about it. He was a <laughs> proponent of spiritual bypassing? Of talking in, about it, not of advocating for it. Okay. No. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, I, Ellen. I can see that this author isn't avoiding pain. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's helping us, um, you know, look at it differently, maybe. Okay, we ready? The destruction of the images. We depend on our images as they depend on us. In World War II, paintings were plundered by the Nazis and carried off along with their previous owners into slavery. In this way, the thieves tried to capture the record of the soul's history and the promise of the spirit. Those who wish to harm us often try to gain power over us by capturing or altering our images. In the ancient Middle East, statues of former kings were often defaced. In China, during the Cultural Revolution, images that held the ancient continuity of the culture, antique scrolls, old porcelain, mummified bodies of sages dead a thousand years were indiscriminately plundered and destroyed. Not only can our most precious images, images be broken, we can also be deceived <coughs> by the glamor of untrue images, which need to be broken as Moses destroyed the golden calf. In the Trojan War, the Greeks triumphed by offering a false image, the great horse that turned out to be full of soldiers was an image the Trojans should have destroyed. What's more, the Greeks claimed that the horse was a kind of repar reparation for their earlier theft from the Trojans of an image from the shrine of Athena, layering false representation upon a theft. The force of images is also destroyed when they are co-opted and stripped of their meaning. Swastikas used as earrings by kids who haven't heard of Hitler. Mm. Crucifixes on decolletage without any sense that the transgression is religious. Advertisements in the New Yorker that feature models whom the Greeks would have recognized as Persephone and Hades, though they would have been curious about the tango that has interlocked their legs. Whereas Ares sneaking off for a weekend with Aphrodite while her husband is at work often seem exciting, but curiously without nourishment. They lack heft because they link us only to an outer satisfaction. It is implausible to our souls that we should become Zeus just by the purchase of a chariot made by Lexus. <laughs> so we are tempted but do not link to a sense of anything greater than ourselves. Spirit is missing and soul cannot quite believe. I love that there's something more fundamental to us that kind of actually, if we pay attention can help us navigate. Mm -hmm. you know? Genuine descent breaks our old life 
In the personal realm, the destruction of our images is one of the things that gives our surrender a depthing force. The woman who lost her child lost her imagined path into the future. Her daughter's high school graduation, her daughter's career and marriage, and her own grandchildren. And with the loss of the future, the past became fixed and supersaturated. When we lose our images, we lose our dreams and our gods, lose both what we worship and the direction in which we pray. What does he mean by images? Statues. I'm sorry, who, who said something? Daniel. I did. Statues. Daniel said something. Oh. <clears throat> yeah. I think, I think they're, they're all, they're even, go, you know, there's the statues and pictures and photographs and all that. But there are also things in our minds, like like our metaphors, our stories. Those are all images too. The things we believe in. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a that, that whole continuum. Yes, and they even are are literal images. You know, when we're thinking, it's not just words. We also have pictures happening in there. Mm. You know, imaginings. Things so. that we believe in. Yeah, like when you're upset with somebody, you don't just have the words, I'm upset with blah, blah. You, you picture them upsetting you, you know, are you being angry or what that scene looked like when you got upset, do you know? So I guess these images they're talking about though are associated with our future hopes and dreams, but So the things that we worship, that we idolize, have a danger of imprisoning us. Mm -hmm. That's how I read it. Um, so that things become not changing and not fluid, but fixed. And sometimes that can be dangerous. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I like that. And isn't it interesting that, you know, something like your child is more than just a child. They actually hold mm. all this meaning, you know, almost to the point where you, you know, um, you've constructed something, you know. You've constructed a life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all around <laughs> Your whole future is constructed in your mind. Yeah, that's it. At such times, we find ourselves trapped for long periods in the new images of nightmare. For this is not the worst, excuse me, the worst fate. For without the dark images, the dream life and the life of art may shut down, leaving us numb. The first root can be seen in Goya's terrible and fascinating paintings of the dead and wounded of Napoleon's Spanish campaign and in Picasso's Guernica, Paul Salon's dark poetry and 
Primo Levi's autobiographical accounts of the Holocaust take this path too. Yet even a great artist may fail to heal the images and so the life. Both those writers killed themselves and so can be counted among the Holocaust dead. Veterans who wake shaking and yelling 20 years after they have been in combat are still caught in the images of nightmare, trying to live them through to dream their way into wholeness. Mm. Wow. Daniel, that's a wonderful question you asked, I think. You know, what, what is an image? It, it's such a broad, mm. not that anyone can give the answer, but it's such a broad thing, what our images are. The response of numbness and silence can be seen in those who say that you cannot write about the Holocaust. The terror of the Khmer Rouge, the genocide of Rwanda, since they are catastrophes so great to be described, too great to be described. To do so, goes the thought, is to do so inadequately and so to fail the victims yet again. Some survivors of great trauma suffer from blindness of no known physical cause. And this blindness too is perhaps a kind of turning away from something sacred tormenting and unendurable. The loss of songs, the loss of languages of tribes, which themselves have disappeared. The dumbness of the defeated and even of the vanishing natural world. These are inarticulate responses to our domination by night. I find it interesting they use the word um, turning away from something sacred and then they follow that by tormenting and unendurable. That seems curious to me. Well, wait, wait, I think it's all three. That's how I read it. I, there may be turning away from something sacred, tormenting. And unendurable. Is there two ways of reading that? I don't think so. It is, th it is three things. But why is the turning away from the sacred like turning away from something tormented and un un unendurable? Yeah, I don't get it either, Lori. I don't, it doesn't seem like it's the same valence or the same. Well, is the turning away tormenting and un and and you see what i mean you could read it that way and i think that's what he meant perhaps a kind of turning away from something sacred which is tormenting and unendurable that's how i read it mm -hmm. oh. you're not turning away from those three things but it's describing the turning away the tormenting and unendurable i, I kind of see something a little different okay it, it, it's as if, um, let's say, the traumas that we endure and the challenges that we endure, we think they're not sacred, do you know? But perhaps uh -huh. there's something sacred in them. That's what he's kind of pointing to, almost uh -huh. like um, doorways, you know, uh, of some sort, you know? And when we try to 
push it away and not talk about it, not write about it, not uh, draw, you know, like a child would draw, you know, some horrible thing that happened, they ask them to draw, you know, you know, make a picture of it, you know. So we don't want to turn away from this pain because there may be something sacred in it. That so it's, that would be the light inside the dark, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's helpful. But then why, why with the tormenting and unendurable? Or the sacred, is that what you're saying, Gail? The sacred is actually all three of those things? I mean, the, the sacred is tormenting and unendurable? It can feel that way, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, challenges can. Horrible, you know, things, holocausts, um, you know, the destruction of the planet. And, um, and yet you can't turn away, you know, <laughs> you know because there's, there's something that's being called to being met. Oh, you know, that reminds me of something that Flint has described about there's something horrible going on in front of you and you can't tear yourself away from it. It's like that it, because it's so overwhelming. It's so and so important. Yeah. Well, I mean, we tend to want to push away the things that we don't like and don't want, don't right. want to feel. So um, I think what he's trying to encourage us to do is not to turn away, but to uh, notice how, you know, like Kim said, that there may be a light in the center of that darkness somewhere. Um, yeah. We don't see it now. That's what I mean. That's what Flint was talking about, how things are so horrible. You can't loosen your group, your gaze from it. Yeah. Even though it's, you know, awful. But there is something sacred in it just by its magnitude, perhaps, or, you know, what it, what it signifies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have eight or five. We have four paragraphs till the end of the chapter. Uh, but maybe since we are discussing after each chapter, maybe we can finish. Yeah, I'm about to finish. Yeah, let's finish okay. the section. The grieving mother tramping through the night of her dreams marches at the edge of, this, of silence. Her dream does not touch on the terrible loss, the time in the bone marrow transplant ward, the mutilation of surgery, the hemorrhages the ma massive dust of morphine, those of morphine on the last night or the sweet searing conversation with the child's school friends. Still, this terse dream is not quite dumb. At least it offers an image of her struggle when all other images have been taken away. During the descent, we also lose the way others see us. 
This is not always a bad thing in the long run, but it is humiliating and painful. The mask that we present to the world slips off and the face behind it becomes visible with its expression of terror, greed, despair, dishonesty, whatever is usually kept in the cellar. The moment of surrendering the old image of life of the self is most painful. At such a time, we know that we must strike out on our own, but in our new solitude and shame, sometimes we go under for a while or forever. Nonetheless, the stripping away of the mask that links us to all that we are known to be and do is, do is a necessary part of the descent, one that eventually allows a fresh start. One optimistic old tale shows the value of destroying the images. A ragged Zen teacher was traveling in winter and at the end of the day came to a temple where he was invited to stay overnight. Outside, the snow was piled high and the cold bitter. In the middle of the night, the traveler took down the altar figure and set it on fire to keep warm. <laughs> the caretaker came, came running in to protest. The teacher asked whether the ashes would have, would have the pearl-like relics that a Buddhist ashes were supposed to contain. No, no, said the caretaker. It's just made of wood. Then why don't you come and warm yourself? <laughs> this story is prized in the Zen tradition. It describes the way our images tend to ossify and sometimes need to die. It is as if all warmth has been locked up in the image. Only when it is destroyed can life be sustained. When our old images break, we suffer terribly. But then when all goes well, New light and heat bring companionship and humble knowledge of the real. I don't know when if I agree with only when an image is destroyed can life be sustained, but I, I would say when an image is broken up can life be sustained. So when it's torn apart in its individual pieces and looked at. Hmm. I think clinging to images uh, can be um, a problem. I'm kind of linking images with um, beliefs. You know, you have an image and a belief about it. I, I kind of link destroyed with um, like ignoring and burning, burning up. And uh, I think it's important to sit with things and think about them. 
I read the story differently that what's more important to, you know, warm the human being or to um, revere a statue. And maybe that's what he was saying, that come and warm yourself. Yeah. Yeah, Zen is ever practical. <laughs> that's what I like about it. <laughs> What's next, Daniel? Um, let's see. It's right. I think now it's, um, I don't think we want to start another chapter. Because we usually end, right? 8.05 or something like this. No, we write, we write or think or... Meditate. Meditate for 10 minutes. Okay. Or do can him. <laughs> yes, I, I think we can we can do the break and then. Um, Great. Okay. Is anyone going to share? Okay, Kim's going to share. <laughs> I was attacked today. And I will what? talk about, I was attacked. Image, images are signs that tell a story. They are not until we see them. What can't be an image? Nothing. Images can be burnt into our body so they are never forgotten. I looked down and a roach was crawling on my t-shirt. It was an image now forever melted into my brain. My wife simply said, oh, you were outside. It must have fallen from a tree. That was your image. I wanted to forever erase that image from my mind, though I did like the beautiful shade of brown on the roach's back. And so there's, oops, I got a, a I got to uh, change on blur. So you can see the roach. You want to see the roach, right? Yes. <laughs> There's the roach. <laughs> it did have a beautiful color. That was the only redeeming. <laughs> Has that ever happened to anyone? You look down and you see a roach on you? No, I have not had the blessing. <laughs> I cannot recall. <laughs> and then, and then to have this person who just so calmly <laughs> takes the whole situation. <laughs> oh, and then I, and then I hit it with the broom, and the broom kind of broke in half. <laughs> <laughs> I have to put the broom back together. <laughs> I think I hit it pretty hard. Did you hit yourself? No. Instant karma. Yes. You know, uh, that's interesting, Kim, that uh, you do that because one of the, I had a couple of things come when I was sitting quietly and one thing was the talk about images 
it, it's not just the image that he's pointing to, but it's the um, idea, sort of like ideas and images come together. Mm. Do you know? Mm. It's the idea and the belief that's attached to the image, you know, that um, we need to kind of look at. Like, for instance, I might um, have a belief, a core belief that I'm a victim, you know, that I've always been a victim somehow. And then maybe uh, support that an image comes in of maybe somebody um, accusing me of something that I didn't do or, you know, uh, saying something hurtful mm -hmm. to me, mm -hmm. you know, and it's sort of like you've got that image and then you have that belief. There's like an underlying belief that's causing the images to really stick. Yeah, the, Im the image is the, the real sticky thing, isn't it? The, yeah, it, the it, belief it, is just an idea that you can throw away. Yeah, it, it, but the, but the image roach, to, the roach. Yeah, <laughs> but the image seems right to uh, give it, um, you know, gravitas, or you know, what I mean, it seems to prove it because you see, you see it right in front of your eyes. You know, the the underlying belief that you might have. But, um, but one other thing that really hit me when I was sitting is the phrase, and I think Ajashanti said it, but all of a sudden it just popped in my head when I was sitting quietly. And it was like, let what comes come, let what goes go. And I don't know why that hit me, but I think everything we read tonight is kind of pointing, pointing there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't have a choice, right? As hard, do you? As hard as you try, it's going to do well, that. What comes will come, what goes will go, but it's the letting. It's the letting, oh, okay. you know, that, that seems to be the part that I have a problem with. It's as if I can, as if I can control it or, you know, I think that's where the pain comes from. Yes. Yeah. Cody, it's very dark in your room. I like it dark. <laughs> <laughs> I could take a nap. <laughs> I like the lightning and the and 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 what you see that everything coming through. Mm -hmm. We had a power outage right before this meeting. I didn't think I was going to get online. I had one at, at three minutes into our sitting and everything went off. Oh. And then it came on like a minute later and I, I, I logged back on. Smooth. Lori's trying Lori, to you, talk. You, you're muted. Thank you. So where are you, Gail? Are you... Um... Where I'm here in, I'm here in Leander in Austin. Leander, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been here. Um, I had um, family visiting for several weeks and then I was traveling before that. So mm. um, I, I feel like I need to integrate all that crazy busyness, you know, and just yeah. kind of chill with you guys. <laughs> I'm glad you're back. Yeah, it's good to be back. I babysat a... Uh, 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 a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old for 10 days. Oh, boy. 
Mm. That was fun. <laughs> <clears throat> nice age. It was fun, but they eat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to cook? Lots of cooking, lots of washing, lots of cleaning. Uh, if they weren't hungry, then they were bored. So <laughs> it, was, you know, it was one of those two. <laughs> Cody, there's lightning behind you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you'll get yeah. rain. We we we're getting a little bit right now. Oh we, good. Hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll go for like the next two weeks. No. <laughs> next two weeks. And we needed to find someone to water Apamata. I guess we don't now, right, Lori? That's right. That's what you said. Yeah. Oh, because of the rain. Yeah. That's great news. <laughs> and then watch tomorrow to be back up to 105 degrees and oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and humid. Oh, right, back. Oh, right now it's 70. Yeah, we can open the doors and the windows now. Well, Daniel, will you release us from this? <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, Daniel did great job also today. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Daniel, you, Daniel, uh, if you ever want the permanent job of sharing the um, text, you have. I've been doing it for two years or ever since the beginning of COVID, so I would I love that. And yeah, I think yeah. you do, you do a better job than I do also. No, I, I, I like, I know, I, I'm glad I can help, uh, but it's also nice yeah, when we switch, uh, different people do, but yeah, anytime I'm here, I can help. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.